Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello and welcome to episode 794 with Sterling Hawkins. You've probably heard that we need to stretch and reach outside our comfort zones. And you've also probably felt, yeah, but I don't want (laughs) to. That doesn't sound like fun. That doesn't feel good. Well, Sterling brings some excellent perspective on how to do that well, the importance and how it can actually feel awesome and be super cool. So you'll learn one, why we need to hunt discomfort. Two, why you need your own street gang. And three, what to do when you feel like quitting. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to pieces that we mentioned here, you can find us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP794. Check out some of our fun stuff over at awesomeatyourjob.com while you're there, like the full text transcripts, which are searchable and tagged by the topic and competency covered, the 10 days to winning at work email course, and a lot of other goodies over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Sterling's story. Sterling Hawkins is an internationally recognized entrepreneur, motivational leader, and public speaker. His 2019 TED Talk, Discomfort is Necessary for Innovation, has been viewed over 100,000 times. Sterling serves as CEO and founder of the Sterling Hawkins Group, a research, training, and development company focused on human and organizational growth. He's been seen in publications like Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, New York Times, Forbes, and more. Based in Colorado, Sterling is a proud uncle of three and a passionate adventurer that can often be found skydiving, climbing mountains, shark diving, or even trekking the Sahara. Big thanks to Sterling for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Sterling. Sterling, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks for having me on, Pete. Good to see you. Oh, you too. Well, I'm fired up to talk about your book, Hunting Discomfort, How to Get Breakthrough Results in Life and Business No Matter What. But it looks like you've been doing some discomfort hunting yourself with skydiving, shark diving, mountain climbing. Can you open us up with a thrilling tale? I, I'm wondering how close you've come to dying, basically. <laughs> Probably too close. I, I think one of my favorite stories is a couple of years ago, my sister wanted to go skydiving for her birthday. And of course, everybody guilt trips me. And they're like, Sterling, you're the no matter what guy. You have to do it. Which I've got a lot to say about, separate subject. But anyways, we go skydiving. And have you ever been skydiving before, Pete? I have. I loved it. It was terrifying not so much the skydiving part but like the 15 things you have to sign saying if you hit the ground wrong it's not their fault Mm -hmm. did you do this 
I signed some sort of release. I don't remember the detail. <laughs> the, there were so many of them. Like it, it just got me more and more hyped up. And we're getting on the plane, and it's a rickety old plane that I'm sure is not really built for much flying, at least not these days. And we get up there, and once we jumped out of the plane, it was just bliss. One of the most incredible experiences of my life. The discomfort leading up to it, though was a challenge. It was the hard part. And in some research I found after the fact, I realized I was in more danger driving there of a bee sting of lightning striking than actually jumping out of the plane. And I, I realized in that jump that we're not always properly oriented to discomfort. And when we can line ourselves up in a way to use it, breakthrough results come. Incredible skydiving jumps and also in, in our life and business. Okay. Well, so let's talk about hunting discomfort. And first things first, yeah. the goal of hunting discomfort is not so much to kill it, but rather to seek it out. Is that fair to say? Well, it's funny. The thing that I get from most people is, Sterling, you got to look at my bank account, my business, my relationships, like all these things. I don't need to hunt discomfort. I'm surrounded by it. And my answer, Pete, is always the same. It's, oh, you mean you're living with discomfort. You're not hunting it because when we hunt it, we maybe aren't killing it per se, but we're free from it forever. Not circumstantially free, not based on an amount of money in your bank account or a special job or certain relationships, but based only within yourself. And it's, it's the only kind of true freedom there is. We just have to hunt the discomfort that's in the way of it. Okay. Intriguing. Well, so <laughs> tell us in the course of putting together these thoughts, yeah. Any particularly shocking discoveries you made along the way? Yeah. So I've been doing this in some shape or form for about a decade. And I came across this research just a couple of years ago, writing my book, actually. I was looking at all kinds of research, and I found something out of the University of Michigan that blew me away. Now, they were studying discomfort of varying sorts, right? Physical discomfort, like somebody broke a, a limb, emotional discomfort, somebody lost a job or perhaps broke up with a loved one mental discomfort, like they were looking at all these kinds of discomfort as they were analyzing somebody's brain and body. And what they found is that it didn't matter what kind of discomfort somebody was going through. Our brain and body process them almost identically. So much so you can take acetaminophen for emotional pain, believe it or not. Hmm. Crazy. And it helps? Supposedly. Now, that, <laughs> that's not like a biohack from Sterling, by the way. I'm not a doctor. Like all the disclaimers, mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting you do that. But the powerful piece is if you take the next step, you say, you know what, if how we meet discomfort is the same anywhere, how we can deal with it, we can grow our capacity to deal with it everywhere. It turns out it's a muscle we can build. You go to the gym mm -hmm. to build your biceps. If you want to grow your resiliency, your ability to create breakout growth, well, you hunt discomfort. There's just no other way. Okay. Well, so uh, as I think about the gym metaphor, yeah. you have some program, yeah. you have a, a stress, and then you have rest, and then you have adaptation. Right. Tell us, how do we think about programmatizing our discomfort hunt versus the folks who say, hey, I got all kinds of discomfort. <laughs> Voiced it upon me. Like, here's your barbell. Ah. Yeah, right. yeah, well, mostly what people are doing with discomfort is they're avoiding it or they're surviving it. They're not using it as a feedback mechanism to change, to adjust, and to grow. And I think that's one of the major missteps that many of us make is when we externalize the problem and say, well, we didn't achieve our goal. We didn't achieve X because we didn't have enough money. We didn't have enough time. I'm not old enough. I'm too old. I don't have the right partner. I don't have the right leadership. 
we rob ourselves of the ability to take that discomfort, that feedback, take that even that potential failure and use it to change and grow ourselves. And so exactly as you pointed out, when you look at discomfort through the lens of, hey, this is here to help me. This is a feedback mechanism. I can use this to not just change how I act, but change who I am and adjust who I am based on the results that I want to achieve. Then it becomes hugely powerful. Now, there is such a thing as, as too much discomfort, and there's a framework that is best to work through because, I don't know, one of the things that used to scare me most is public speaking. Mm-hmm. And if you were to throw me onto a stage back in the day without any framework or structure or support system, I probably would have collapsed. But when you, you know, one, have a commitment of, I want to achieve this, I want to be successful in my public speaking, for example, and you've got people around you that are going to support you in that journey and especially pick you up when you fall down, then it becomes much more feasible to move through and improve. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Could you bring it to life with a few examples in terms of instead of avoiding or just enduring, hunting, and and how that's been helpful for real-life folks who went out and made that mindset shift and, and saw cool results. Absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite stories is from our No Matter What community. And the No Matter What community is a group of people that we've put together that have joined us on declaring big goals, big visions for themselves, for their communities, their family, their business, and they're willing to move through the discomfort to achieve it. And this one gentleman joined us a couple of years ago upon losing his really nice, somewhat cushy corporate job during the beginning of the pandemic. It was a tough time for many, myself included, and especially him. He's got this family to support. Now, what he could have done is just applied for another job and you know tried to make ends meet, but he didn't just do that. He was walking through some side neighborhood in the suburbs of New York, and he stumbled into a tattoo parlor. And one of the important things in the no matter what system, the framework that we teach people to grow through is get a tattoo. Commit so deeply there's no going back. Now, I don't mean that literally, but Emmanuel took it as such, walked into the tattoo parlor, got the name of the business he wanted to start tattooed on his left bicep. I don't know how he explained that to his wife when he got home, Mm -hmm. but it left him working towards building his own business in a way that he probably otherwise would have shied away from, been worried about, waited for the right time to, made sure his bank account was properly padded before he started it. And today he just texted me a couple of weeks ago and he says, Sterling, I can't thank you enough. You know, I'm a testimonial for life, but really what I have here is an eight figure business in a matter of 18 months. So when you go into that discomfort and you commit to things on the other side, it produces remarkable results, things that we can't even see from where we sit today. Impressive. All right. So then what are the the steps here in terms of making that happen? Yeah. So the first I, I think is one of the more challenging, which is you've got to be willing to see reality clearly, not the reality that we necessarily see with our two eyes, although that's important, but we've got to be willing to question our values, ethics, beliefs, ways of thinking, being, and acting that might not be perfectly correlated with reality. It's just like my experience skydiving, right? The chances of me dying were very, very slim, but my experience of fear and failure were massive. And as we can come to terms or reconcile what's actually dangerous from what is merely discomfort, we can change one of three things, either ourselves, how we see others, 
and how we see the world. And when we change that view, the perspective, those beliefs, it will naturally change our actions and then give rise to new results. So that's the first step. Okay. And could you share an example of that in practice in terms of someone that made the shift and it was cool? Yeah. Well, I think a personal story might fit in well here because it's been dramatic for me, Emmanuel and for many. But I, I was serious. Like one of the things that scared me most was speaking in public. And it wasn't just speaking in public. It was a lot of self-doubt and fear of exposure, two of the major discomforts that stopped many of us as humans, me especially. And I had this discomfort in a large part to do with the fact that I had been hugely successful earlier in my career. My father and I started this company, sold it to a group in Silicon Valley where we raised over $550 million as part of this collective in what was kind of the Apple Pay before Apple Pay. Mm -hmm. Multi-billion dollar valuation. I think I've got it made. It wasn't discomfort at all. It was all comfort and certainty. And I really thought I had it all figured out until the housing market collapsed and the investment dried up. And it was like playing out a, a, a sad country song of a story where no longer do I have a job. Eventually, I run out of cash. I go from this big, beautiful penthouse in downtown San Francisco to my parents' house. And it even got so bad, my girlfriend broke up with me. It was like one thing after another. And I was suffering from a lot of self-doubt, a lot of uh, fear of exposure, people seeing me for what I really was, which I thought was not nearly enough, especially having all that success early on. And what I did is applied to speak at this conference in Singapore because I remember this thing my mom said to me when I was a kid. She said, the way out is through. And I thought, okay, well, if I want to change this situation, I want to transform my business and my life, I need to go through the things that scare me most. So applied to speak at this conference in Singapore and practiced incessantly. Uh, my poor sister, I dragged her into it and practiced in front of her probably hundreds, if not thousands of times. And it, as part of that process, had to give up some of the thoughts, feelings, and beliefs I had about myself and what I was capable of. And eventually, I did go on to the stage. I gave the speech. Good thing I practiced because I think I blacked out. And I get off the stage and the conference director, I, I think I bombed Pete. So I'm like covering my eyes, trying to just sneak out of the room. And he catches up with me and he goes, Sterling, that's the best talk I've seen in my 17 years of doing this. To this day, I don't think he was in the same talk I was in. I think it was just like mm -hmm. a nice thing he wanted to say to me. And he did go on to put me in touch with all of his conference director friends. I was like, ah, oh, my mom was right. The way out is through. And the way through is giving up some of the things that you hold true about yourself, whether they're true or not, if you can let go of them, there's new things that can arise on the other side. Mm -hmm. And how do you articulate when we talk about engaging what's true and real? Yeah. How would you articulate your belief prior versus post that moment? So prior it was, I'm incapable of speaking in public. When I had that all too common feeling that anybody that's afraid of speaking in public probably knows where like you get really hot, the world starts to spin. And I thought that's just the way that it was. I thought I was that way and there was no other option for me. I was just one of the many that would rather be giving the eulogy than in the coffin. Thank you, Seinfeld, for that reference, right? Mm -hmm. And in 
going through that thing and standing on that stage, like, yes, I experienced some of the feelings of, of self-doubt and worry and fear and all the things that I was expecting. But I proved to myself, importantly proved to myself, that they didn't have to stop me from giving a successful speech. Mm-hmm. So afterwards, sure, I, I might continue to be scared. In fact, I was continued to be scared for some time afterwards. But I started to let go of that belief that I was a certain way. I was afraid to speak in public and started to embrace the idea that I can, not only can I speak in public, but I do, and I do it successfully. All right. Beautiful. Thank you. Yep. Of course. Okay. That's our first step. What's our second step? <laughs> the second, we, we pointed to a little bit with that story of Emmanuel, but self-doubt does get in the way of many of us. And when we commit with that second step of get a tattoo commit so deeply there's no going back, it calls us forward through any discomfort, through any fear that might be in the way. Now, I'm not suggesting you have to get a real tattoo like Emmanuel. That's an option. A surprising number of people from the no matter what community have done that. But you do need something that's going to call you forward when everything inside you is telling you to stop. And you can do that in a couple of different ways. Like, sure, you could get a physical tattoo, But you might just tell a a friend or a significant other. You might commit to them and say, hey, I'm going to do X by a certain amount of time that goes by and then have them call you on it. You could sign a legal agreement. You could put an amount of money on the line that's meaningful to you, that's going to bring you forward. You're looking for ways to put yourself on the line that are going to, again, kind of call you into action when it doesn't feel so good, where the commitment's stronger than the feelings. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about signing a legal agreement. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to the money game, you know, I've heard of yeah. websites like stickk.com. It facilitates yeah. that. Yeah. And so with a legal agreement, I guess in the course of doing business, like, sure, like I've actually committed to a client or a partner or to whomever a particular yeah. result by a particular time. Yep. So there's that. I guess I, I'm wondering if it if it's a goal that doesn't so much. <laughs> Would I sign a legal agreement to complete a marathon, for example? And, and how, have you seen that go down and how would it work? <laughs> you know, it wouldn't necessarily be a legal agreement, but you could formalize a, a commitment to somebody that was important to you. Mm-hmm. And you could take it up a notch by, I don't know, posting it on Facebook and sharing with everybody you know on social media that, hey, I'm committed to running this marathon. And then those mornings when you you just don't feel like getting up and training, that idea that everybody is expecting you to run this race is going to be a tattoo of sorts that's going to help you move forward. Mm-hmm. It's not going to feel good, but it is going to help support you into moving into action. Okay, beautiful. So legal agreements are, are great for uh, business purposes, but I think it's really the commitment that we make inside of ourselves that's more important. And it's the action of sharing it with others where it becomes much more powerful, whether it's on a legal document or written down somewhere. I do suggest that for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly I'm, I'm thinking about the research on commitment devices and the legendary Ulysses or Odysseus, like oh, no yeah. one hear the siren song, but I hear that's dangerous. So strap me, <laughs> um, <laughs> strap me up. So there's no way out. Right. right so, exactly. Or burn the boats. Like we, we can't retreat, you know, there's there's, there's nothing else. Any other creative ways to to lock that commitment in hard? You can do it with consequence. You know, if you do do something, you get a certain reward, 
or if you don't do something, you lose something. One of my friends, he had some trouble making to the gym every morning. So he committed with consequence and said, you know, every morning of the five days a week that I'm committed to going to the gym, if I don't, I'm going to donate $100 to my favorite charity. Mm -hmm. Now, Sure, a couple mornings he didn't make it, but that $100 going out of his bank account starts to weigh on you the more mm-hmm. often you you miss on that commitment. And it, it did really work. He lost something like 25 pounds from that alone. It's so funny. And and I am such a master of rationalizing. I'm like, well, you know yeah. what? Maybe I did need to do some more support of that charity. <laughs> like, <laughs> like after the fact. <laughs> so well, well, here's, here's what you, I had another friend a mentor of mine, actually, his name's Kirkland Tibbles, phenomenal guy, runs a group called uh, Influential You. But he, when looking at commitments, suffered from some of the same things. So he said, I'm going to donate to the political party that I hate Mm -hmm. every time I don't fulfill on my commitment. So you can work it that way too. I was also thinking about just straight up torching the money. (laughs) Although I I guess that's technically illegal in the United States. Fun fact, it's against the law. But I think it may be effective. It could be. You could give it to a friend. You could give it to somebody that you don't really want to give it to. Mm-hmm. But you are looking for ways that are going to call you into action, right? To your point, like you don't want it to be something that you really want to give money to all the time, mm-hmm. at least in the amounts that you're going to be giving it. You want it to weigh heavily enough on you that you're going to do the action. The point is not to make the payoff, you know? Mm-hmm. That's right. I'm also thinking about we had uh, Manish Sethi on the show and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He created a device called the Pavlock. Have you heard of this? I have. It shocks you when you don't do (laughs) whatever the thing is, right? That's right. Of course, you still have to push the button to do the shock. Uh, (laughs) I guess you could get permission to, uh, you know, a friend or or family member. That reminds me of uh, the original Ghostbusters, the very beginning where he's shocking the, the woman when they're reading cards. You remember that? You know, I'm afraid I don't. Oh. Refresh all of our memories, Sterling. Old Ghostbusters reference, yeah. Well, in the beginning of Ghostbusters, they're, I think, working on mind reading or, or something crazy like that. Oh, and yeah. And he's showing the backside of a card and asking this woman to guess what it is. And every time she gets it wrong, he shocks her. Supposedly, that's supposed to you know, be some negative reinforcement to make her better at mind reading, but it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Okay. Duly noted for the uh, aspiring mind readers. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. It is tough to make a commitment like that. And I think that self-accountability is fantastic to maintain the status quo. If you're reliable to write one blog a week or to make five cold calls or to run two miles every single day, you probably don't need to commit to somebody or or something that you're going to continue to do that. But if you're looking to grow in any kind of meaningful way, you need outside accountability. You need an outside commitment to call you forward because everything inside of you is going to tell you, stop, this doesn't make sense. You're going to rationalize your way out of it. You really need people on your side to help. And that's the the third step of the, the no matter what system, which is, I call it build a street gang. Mm-hmm. Not because I look anything like somebody that belongs in a gang, by the way. I think the best I did was like Boy Scouts when I was 15. But I call it building a street gang for a reason. I'm not talking about a personal board of directors. I'm not talking about friends or spouses, although your street gang can be comprised of those people. But you're looking for people that can go toe to toe with you and are really going to hold you accountable for what you said you're going to do. 
Now, that's the most important function of your street gang, being that uh, accountability partner. Research shows that when you're personally accountable to somebody on a specific day and time for a specific thing, you're not 70%, 80%, 90% more likely to achieve your goal. You're 95% more likely to achieve it. It's almost like if we actually want to achieve anything, we better be personally accountable because it's going to help us get there. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to, to building the street gang, how do you recommend doing the recruiting? Well, you're looking for people that have four main functions. One is the accountability. You need somebody that's going to be strong enough, again, to go toe-to-toe with you, especially when it doesn't feel good. You want this person to be more committed to your growth and your success and your vision than they are to your feelings. That's not to say that you're going to achieve everything every time, but they are going to take a really hard look with you as to why you didn't achieve what it was that you set. Was it an action? Did you take no actions? Was there a mistake? Did you account for something wrong? Did you maybe see reality incorrectly? And they're going to work with you to figure out how to achieve that thing at a very, very heavy accountability level. So that's that's one. The second piece is you need some kind of inspiration, somebody or something that's going to light the fire in you about why you're here, what your purpose is, to quote Simon Sinek, like, what is your why and how are they going to bring you through that or light that fire in you? Mm -hmm. You then need some level of mentorship, somebody that's got some expertise in the area that you're looking to grow in, and they can teach you the specifics or specialized knowledge of how to achieve whatever that might be. They might also put you in touch with people like there's somebody that's in the role going the direction of of what you want to be yourself. And the fourth, which I find highly underrated in a lot of business cultures, but I do see it in the most high performing is love, not in a romantic sense. Like I'm not talking about find yourself a romantic partner, especially if you already have one fantastic, but at a human level, somebody that's really going to love and support you through any downfalls that you might have. Now, many people have those four roles kind of revolving in and around their life, but it's a matter of sitting down with them, maybe having coffee, a Zoom meeting, whatever it is, and formalizing that role and asking them, hey, here's what you've meant to me. Here's the role in my street gang that I'd like you to play. And here's what that might look like over time. And when you sit down and formalize it like that, people can kind of rise to the occasion of the role that they're supporting you in. Mm -hmm. Now, when you share with someone, their role is your lover. What, (laughs) what are some of the actions? Like, what does that person doing in terms of like regular conversations and as the process unfolds? So it could be as simple and straightforward as some encouragement to point out the successes that you've had, even if you haven't arrived where you want to arrive yet. They could be looking at what you've already achieved in your life, what you've already achieved on this particular trajectory. They're going to remind you of all the great things about you that you have that they accept, including the failures, and help you kind of come to terms with, oh yeah, this failure, this misstep, or or maybe just not having achieved the level of growth that I want to is okay. 
now that that could be over coffee. It, it could be a, a lunch or it could just be kind of sitting down with a friend on the couch. It's more like the feeling of acceptance that you're looking to draw out in the situation. And that could look a little bit differently depending on the people having those conversations. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So after we've got the street gang, what's next? Uh, well, of course, we all run into problems, obstacles, limits, uh, challenges like they are real. Sometimes there's just not enough money or there's not enough time, right? We do have to deal with the the hard limits of the situations and circumstances that we're in. And we need that fourth step, which I call flip it. And it's looking for how can we use those obstacles, those roadblocks, those barriers? How can we use those things as the pathway to even greater results? It's a very stoic philosophy. You know, the obstacle is the way. Mm-hmm. And as we can think differently about some of the things that maybe we're sweeping under the rug, we're embarrassed about, we're, we're you know trying to get rid of those proverbial warts, the more we can embrace them and look to them as the source of our strength, it actually becomes the reason for your success, not the reason inhibiting you from achieving it. Mm-hmm. So let's let's go through some examples like, hey, I don't have enough time, but actually that's an enabler of success. Or I don't have enough money, but actually that's handy. My boss is a jerk, but actually that's useful. Can you, can you give us some examples of how this plays out in practice? Yeah. So I was lucky enough to give a TEDx talk a couple of years ago with a gentleman whose name was William Hung from American Idol fame, if you remember him at all. Uh is he also in Arrested Development, Hung Jury? He's not. No, this this is the guy that sang uh, Ricky Martin, She Bangs so badly that he became world famous. Ah, uh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So with the rest of the world, I had seen him on TV and the news networks and everybody making fun of him as like not a great singer, which I guess subjectively he's not. But in getting to know him a little bit, I started to see the human side of it and how challenging and hard that must have been when he had what felt like the entire world breathing down on him of, you're not a good singer, you messed up, you're embarrassed. Like, what are you going to do with your life? And for a while, he said it, it was debilitating. He wasn't sure where to go or what to do because, you know, he felt that he was really expressing his heart, what mattered to him. And, you know, maybe he wasn't the greatest singer in the world. But singing was important to him. And what he did is he he embraced that quote unquote failure that he had. And he said, okay, well, if this is how I sing, this is how I sing. Everybody in the world knows me. Why don't I make the most of this? Mm-hmm. And so he he started singing and capitalizing on the fact that nobody thought he was a good singer. And not only did he create his own record deal, but he ended up on a stage in Vegas singing with Ricky Martin. He was made countless dollars from all the records that he sold and all the places around the world that he's traveled to and singing from the very thing that everybody told him he would fail at. So, you know, that's I always find a, a great example of the obstacle being the way. That is good. And I couldn't resist Googling while, while oh, we were yeah. talking about this. He, he was indeed in Arrested Development as the leader of the was band. Was he really? Hung Jury, which appears in Mock Trial. <laughs> I did not know he was. See, see like he, he's written this thing in, in all the different ways he possibly could. I, I didn't even know that. But that's mm-hmm. you know just another example of he's like using this thing yeah. in all these different places. That's cool. I dig that. And, and certainly, I guess... 
what is that they say? There's no such thing as bad publicity. Uh, he, he managed right. to take that. He, okay, I've got some notoriety. Well, yeah. that is in some ways can be transformed into a positive asset. Exactly. Any other examples that maybe the everyday professional can get behind? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a business example. And this is going to be like a, a big case study, but I think everybody will be able to personalize it for themselves. And it's uh, from our famous Richard Branson of Virgin fame. And in the 90s, he was CEO of Virgin Atlantic, the transatlantic airliner. And one of the things he was committed to doing in the early 90s was retrofitting all of his jets with the latest and greatest entertainment systems. It was something like a 10 million pound proposition. And anybody that uh, recalls the early 90s, it was a tough economic time. And so Richard he wasn't quite as famous as he is now, but a lot of people knew him for the showmanship, the success he'd had, everything else. And he was calling banks, he was calling lenders, he was even calling in favors. And he just couldn't find the 10 million pounds that were required to retrofit his plane. So he's got a hard problem, like something that he literally cannot solve, at least in its current form. But what he did is one of my favorite ways to flip it, which is he created himself a bigger problem. You're thinking like, I, I thought you were crazy, Sterling. Now I'm, I'm sure of it, right? But hear me out. He said, if I can't find 10 million pounds to retrofit my planes, what if I buy all new planes? A 4 billion pound proposition. So he called Airbus up and he said, listen, if I buy an entirely new fleet of planes from you? Will you throw in the entertainment system and give me the financing necessary to buy them? Said yes. Airbus, same thing. Virgin ended up with a, an entirely new fleet of planes, the cheapest planes that they've ever bought in the history of the company with the latest and greatest entertainment systems on board. It was only because he couldn't achieve his goal in the original way that he thought that he started creating a bigger problem. And that solved not only getting all the latest and greatest entertainment, but gave them the newest jets they've ever bought at the same time. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it, it blows me away. I'm like, that is so smart. It, it, you know, most of us aren't buying new fleets of planes, but we're confronted with budget issues all the time. I know I am personally and professionally. And it helps sometimes to say, okay, if this were an order of magnitude bigger, how would I solve it then? It opens up some new ways to, to achieve it. Mm -hmm. All right. And then what's the next step? So the, the next and final step is to deal with the fact that no matter how much we plan, prepare, or predict, tomorrow is not guaranteed to any of us at any level. And I think we lose sight of that with all the stock predictions and weather predictions and road conditions and news and everything else telling us what tomorrow's going to bring, tomorrow's not promised. And we have to deal with that uncertainty in a very specific way. The fifth step, I call it surrender. Not in terms of giving up. I'm not saying, you know, sit on the couch and watch Netflix and order a pizza. There might be a time and place for that. I'm talking about actively and intentionally accepting what is exactly how it is. Carl Jung, arguably like the father of modern psychology, he had this great quote that's really stuck with me. He said, we cannot change anything until we accept it. Condemnation about not having enough time or enough money or enough resources, condemnation about any of those things doesn't liberate. It oppresses. 
And when we can surrender our view, the things that we're upset about, resentful of, holding against other people, when we surrender those things, it frees us to achieve something brand new. And if we don't surrender, it works the other way. It becomes an anchor holding us back. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so then I'm curious, in the middle of all this, when, Mm. when the rubber meets the road and we just sure feel like quitting. Yeah. How do you power through? Yeah. Well, so you, you've got a couple of components, right? You've got your commitments that are calling you forward when you want to give up. You've got your street gang that's building your courage, your confidence, and your accountability. You've got some of these different ways to flip it and, and think about it. But that acceptance piece for me is is the most challenging. And I, I find one of the greatest ways to accept is what's called the sacred pause mm-hmm. by really slowing down by maybe turning off your phone or your computer for a couple of minutes, even better for a couple of hours by not bringing that phone in bed with you, by really slowing down and intentionally start to accept what is. And it's not necessarily a fast process, but when you have some kind of practice where you're intentionally doing that over time, it's going to allow you to let go of that discomfort, the things that maybe you've been holding on to, or better said, holding you back, and and let you rise in a new way. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, tell me, Sterling, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things? I think that's it. I, I mean, this system is designed to move you through growth. I've always been inspired by movies like the Star Wars and so on, where you've got these heroes moving through these incredible journeys. And I think this is almost a system to move ourselves through that journey. It helps us step into the unknown, unknown of ourselves, unknown of our world, and realize something new for ourselves, realize something new about ourselves or about others or about the world that we can bring back. And that's that's a true gift to the world. And that's what I think real growth is. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Well, now can we hear a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring? It's that quote I heard from my mom. It's actually Robert Frost. It's the way out is through. All right. The way out is through to me means you go through the things that you're fearful of, scared of, and what you're looking for is on the other side. Okay. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I found a study from Yale University, and it turns out when you're uncomfortable, you're four times better at learning. You learn four times faster. It's like a biohack to being better. That is intriguing. So when you say uncomfortable, there's a variety of ways. So like if I'm just like cold, if I'm wearing a hair shirt, what kind of is there a precise form of discomfort we're talking about? No, I mean, like we're talking about with that University of Michigan study, like discomfort is discomfort, physical, mental, emotional, arguably spiritual. Uh, So as long as you're in some level of discomfort, that's not debilitating, Mm -hmm. but has you kind of sit up and take notice, could be a cold room, could be sitting on a bed of nails, if you're into that kind of thing, any kind of discomfort will trigger that superpower of being four times better, faster and smarter. Intriguing. All right. And how about a favorite book? I have many of them, but as I was thinking about this, I think it's got to be The Catcher in the Rye, J.D. Salinger. All right. Yeah. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? This is probably an overused answer, but I am in love with Keynote, not only for giving presentations, but I'll use it to map out some of my ideas and kind of draw different maps of how some of these things are, are working inside of myself and inside of companies. And I find it something that I'm on like half my day. Okay. 
and a favorite habit? So one of my only habits is that every day I get up and I commit to doing at least one thing no matter what. My days look very different. I'm on the road a lot, giving keynotes, workshops, different places around the world. And every day I get up and I could be something different. Could be I'm going to call my mom today no matter what, or I'm going to meditate today no matter what. It doesn't really matter what it is, but I find that when I've got one thing that I'll do every day, regardless of the circumstances, it builds my capacity to get things done, even when the world's thrown into chaos, COVID, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's something I use and I recommend it to a lot of people. Okay. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect, resonate, gets highlighted a lot? I think it's that research from Carl Jung. We cannot change anything until we accept it. And like I said in the beginning, discomfort's not the point. I'm not suggesting everybody live a super uncomfortable life. But when you move into that discomfort, and as Carl Jung suggests, you accept it exactly how it is, that's where growth comes from. And you grow your ability to deal with different kinds of discomforts, not set, and it grows over time along with you. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Best thing to learn everything about me, the no matter what community, my book, all that stuff is sterlinghawkins.com. All my social media is there. And one of the really cool things we started doing is sharing commitments of folks from the community up online. So you can check out what everybody else is up to, get inspired, and maybe even submit something yourself. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Final challenge is is find something that you're uncomfortable with every single day and at least take a micro dose of it. Every time you do, it's going to make you a little bit stronger and it's going to grow that discomfort muscle for you. All right. Sterling, thanks. It's been a treat. I wish you much fun on the hunt. Thank you, Pete. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I really appreciated Sterling's distinction there associated with danger versus discomfort. The internal feeling really can be like, uh, am I going to die? Or oh, I really don't want to. And yet if you take that moment, reflect, note what's really going on. It's like, oh, no, that's just going to feel kind of bad, but that should be worth it. Okay. I can breathe. I can acknowledge that. I can go for it, even proactively hunt it. And then see really cool things on the other side. Good stuff from Sterling. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've mentioned are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP794. Hope to catch you next time. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.